Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today is Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Colin Lowe, Managing Director of Kingsfleet Wealth. It's been a tumultuous year for equity markets, but with a formal start of Donald Trump's presidency and elections in a number of US own countries, next year might be even worse. When markets are choppy, very active stock picking can come into its own, not just to seize any scarce opportunities, but, crucially, to avoid troubled areas and companies. The important question here is, though, what sectors and what stocks do you pick? So to try and shed some light on this, Kate has been quizzing leading UK equity managers on how they're positioning their portfolios for the year ahead. Kate, who did you speak to? So I spoke to a range of um, fund managers. So I had UK equity income managers and then um, a few smaller companies managers as well. Um, so included people like the Buffettology Fund, City of London Investment Trust, Henderson Small and & Companies and, and quite a few others as well. Okay, so turning first to equity income, an area many investors have in their portfolios, um, what shares um, did uh, the manager in this area feel confident on and why? So this was Job Curtis, um, so that's manager of City of London Trust. Um, and so he liked Pendragon, and that's one of the, uh, or the biggest motor retailer in the UK, he says. Um, and so it's got a £446 um, million pound market cap. Now the price earnings ratio, so we talk a lot about price earnings ratio in this, because um, obviously valuation is very important when we're looking at these UK shares, particularly at the moment. So um, that is on a PE of um, eight times 2015-16 earnings with a 4.5% yield. So it's quite kind of good. And he says it's got very solid like-for-like sales increases, um, and which makes it kind of a very lowly rated share, which is actually doing well on a fundamental basis. Um, so, I mean, so he highlighted that one. Another one is Diageo, uh, which does tend to define opinion a little bit. I think people think of it as a bit of a kind of bond proxy stock because it's got this kind of consistent um, dividend. It's, it's seen as kind of a very stable stock in that sense. Um, it's got this kind of added kicker as well since since Brexit um, because it has this kind of high proportion of overseas earnings which are obviously benefiting from that weaker sterling um, kind of dynamic as well. Okay, now um, what does Job Curtis not like? So he does not like miners at the moment. So he highlighted Anglo-American, for example. And um, that's just an area that he, he just doesn't feel comfortable with. He thinks miners are obviously quite dependent on Chinese growth. And if we get another kind of blip there, that could really affect them. And it's just a kind of a volatile sector, which he just doesn't feel comfortable owning. Okay. And do the other managers think this too? Well, no, in fact, um, miners, another thing which divide opinion, they've obviously done well this year after having that terrible time um, during the real commodities route. So Jeremy Lang, who's manager of Ardevra UK Income Fund, he likes Anglo-American. And his view is that you have to be specific with miners. He doesn't like the whole sector. Um, but some of them, he says, including Anglo-American, have been really good since that kind of commodities route at rationalising their businesses. Um, he says Anglo-American, they've, they've overhauled the business um, and they've been kind of selling down areas that they don't need anymore. Um, and he says that it's being really well managed and actually um, it's kind of coming out the other side and doing well. Okay, so um, some managers don't like miners, though. Um, are there any other areas that they don't like? Um, yeah, so other areas, 
Alex Wright over at Fidelity. He's been avoiding um, these kind of bond proxy type stocks um, in the consumer staples area. So he doesn't like Unilever or Reckitt Benkiser. And it's mainly just due to how kind of expensive those have become when people have really been paying over the odds, I guess, for, for safety and security of income. I mean, he says that, you know, you just need to avoid these things which have become kind of overvalued and he includes Unilever and Reckitt Benkiser in in that kind of group. Okay. Now, um, several of the managers you spoke to focus on small and mid-cap companies. Um, what were some of their top picks? Um, so small and mid-cap, um, a good couple of examples there would be CML Microsystems. Now, this is a smaller company which designs and sells semiconductor products to communications and storage businesses. Um, the good thing about this one is it's quite capital light because of, of the kind of nature of it, what it deals in. Um, and so it's got kind of low cost base there. And it's also got quite high barriers to entry um, because it's got very strong intellectual property and in the design of its chips. And also the, the good thing about this is once a company has started using these chips, it's kind of very difficult to switch supplier because they become very embedded in a company's product line. So you can kind of assume there's quite a solid brand loyalty, I guess, here, which means that there's quite a good, which means you can kind of see that they've got a strong business line going forward. So that's one. And over at Henderson Smaller Companies, they highlighted Burford Capital, and that's a third-party litigation funder. And that's quite a growing area now just because of overhauling the way that lawyers can charge for services and recoup costs of court cases. More and more people are turning to third party litigation funders. Uh, so Burford Capital is one of those um, and it's really benefiting from this kind of growing market. Um, and Indriati Van Heen, who's deputy manager of Henderson Small Companies, she said that there's a real benefit with this stock in that its returns are uncorrelated to the market. It's not like litigation funding is, is kind of dependent on consumer demand or anything. You can kind of hope that that's a stock that will keep doing well, regardless of what happens on the macro picture. Okay, some interesting moves. And you can see the full list of manager share buy and sells in Kate's article in the magazine and online. Sticking with the theme of smaller companies, Kate has recently also had an in-depth chat with the manager of an IC Top 100 fund, which is focused on UK smaller companies. Kate, um, which is this? So this is Mike Prentice, and he's manager of BlackRock Smaller Companies Trust. Okay. Um, now that is a, um, um, obviously an investment trust, and a number of um, UK smaller companies investment trusts have moved out to a wider discount to net asset value, which obviously some investors might not like. What um, has caused this, and um, is Mike Prentice very concerned about this? Uh, well, people are generally quite worried um, or concerned about the UK economy and the UK market post-Brexit because obviously there is just such kind of uncertainty about the future of of you know what's going to happen to companies as a result. So people have been kind of selling down things which they think will be very exposed to the domestic market and people kind of associate that with smaller companies because obviously more of their sales are domestically facing as opposed to overseas. Um, so you know that that's generally the concern. 
He is not really worried. He is slightly concerned about maybe slowing UK growth next year. But he says he's not kind of, you know, predicting a recession. And he says, actually, you can find tons of mid and smaller companies, both with a big chunk of their earnings coming from overseas. For example, he says 50% of the earnings in, his, in the companies he invests in are derived from overseas, um, which is obviously a good thing if we have, you know, when we have weaker sterling just because of that currency dynamic again. Um, and so he says also, you know, he's got exposure to a lot of companies, both which are benefiting from US growth and also which are kind of not cyclical. So which he believes can do well, regardless of what happens in the wider economy. OK, so what would be an example of a company set to benefit from US growth? So the one he highlighted, the one I've talked about here, is for Imprint Group. And this is a promotional gift company. So it's, it's a company that would do all the kind of branded um, products for, I don't know, company away days or things like that, you know, branded mugs and branded leaflets, that kind of thing. Um, and the the big thing here is that although this is a UK company, in fact, 96% of revenues are derived from the US. And so it's been doing very well um, as a result of weak sterling there, obviously. Um, and he just says this, this has got quite a kind of small market share at the moment. So a big scope to grow. And there are quite high barriers to entry as well. So that's that's one that he's just highlighted there. Okay, and what will be an example of, let's say, a company that's maybe a bit more UK-focused but is still resilient? Um, so he highlighted CVS Group, and this is the UK's largest vet surgery business. Um, so it's got, obviously, a lot of vet practices around the UK, um, but it has a lot of other kind of business areas that it can expand into as well. It does kind of specialist operations. It, it deals with things like pet cremation. Um, there are a lot of kind of areas that it actually can expand into and it's doing very well. And again, it, you know, his point is that regardless of what's happening in the economy, people will still need to use vet practices. Um, and this this is one that's really benefiting. OK. Colin, um, do you think UK smaller companies funds are a good idea at the moment? Well, I think it's always important to ensure that you have some money invested in companies that have that potential for growth that smaller companies offer. Um, they tend not to be so necessarily associated with the macro picture either. Um, so I think, yeah, there are some great opportunities. I love some of the examples that Kate's just given. OK. Um, now, turning to smaller companies' investment trusts, these are on a wider than average discount to NAV in a number of cases. So do you think they're a good bargain? They probably are. Some of them are good bargains, Um Again, I think that's just been as a result of market movements, really, and the fact that uh, smaller companies, and as Kate said, anything that does seem to have a UK-centric focus seems to have been the baby that's been thrown out with the bathwater, which is rather unfortunate. And um, there's some great companies there that hold shares in some really good businesses. Um, so, yeah, I think there's some good opportunities. There will be people who will be willing to play the discount game and just buy in and then sell out when they get when that discount narrows. But there'll be some opportunities there that are probably worth holding for a much longer period. OK, now, now you say that um, it's largely just because of market movements, but there's always a but. Do you have any concerns about UK smaller companies and the funds and investment trusts which invest in them? There will always be some that uh, have missed the boat or missed opportunities. But, and again, just talking very generally about the sector, there's also some that have sucked in huge amounts of money. Um, even if they're in the UK or company sector, they may have a focus on smaller companies. 
um, and they've sucked in a huge amount. But there'll be some that had some enormously powerful opportunities in the years to come. So could there be any poor ones? Yes, there will be some poor ones in there. Yeah, absolutely. I would always just be saying that a smaller company should always be forming a, a smaller proportion of someone's holdings anyway if we're placing all our eggs in that particular basket and we might come unstuck. Okay, so if you are going to allocate to UK smaller companies, um, what type of fund would be best at the moment? Yeah, um, that's that's quite a difficult one. I mean, again, I'll just talk about the process that we use. So we would generally try to be focusing on the fact that people ultimately an investor is investing in a company um, a series of companies which are managed by a fund manager Um, so given that that's the case we tend not to use smaller company funds we prefer to use multi-cap solutions so that the fund manager has the choice to go into a small company or a mid-cap or a large cap or a mega cap and they can just be driven by the quality of the business rather than which sector it's in but that said there are people of course who have a particular penchant to want to invest in smaller companies and the fund managers that i'm reasonably familiar with who i've seen work over the years would be somebody like harry nimmo at standard life richard bullis at franklin templeton who've got a long track record a lot of experience and they've, they've delivered really sort of superb returns in the long run. They've both, I think, struggled over the last year. But I think, again, a lot of that is just because the market has moved against them. Okay. Um, You mentioned that you particularly like multi-cap funds. I mean, what would be some examples of good multi-cap funds? Yeah. So, I mean, there's some very well-known good good favourites. Linsall Train um, uh, would would work very well. Nick Train's funds, both the investment trust that he runs and... and It's Finsbury uh, Growth and Income. And the Lintel Train um, Unit Trust. Uh, Again, he's a real buy and hold manager, so you know he doesn't turn over his stock very, very much at all. Um, If you want to have something that's specifically multi-cap, again, Franklin Templeton have uh, a fund, the UK Manager Focus Fund, which has access to small, mid, and large cap all within the one fund, and they have a manager running each constituent part. So that's a great way of accessing different aspects of the UK economy almost within one fund. So there are various multi-cap solutions around, some of which you know are, are well known, and others that are just worth hunting around to find. Okay, thanks Colin and Kate, and you can read the full interview of Mike Pentis in this week's magazine or on the website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk. This week's portfolio clinic features a reader who wants a diverse portfolio to boost his income when he retires. But he has so many holdings, he has pretty much diluted away the impact of any individual investment. Colin, you were one of the experts who reviewed this portfolio, which has more than 70 holdings. Why does having so many investments dampen investment returns? Yeah, well, the problem is the more that you buy into the market... With more funds, the more shares underneath you then acquire, and you end up just holding a tracker fund, really. But, of course, you're not paying tracker fund prices. You're paying managed fund prices for holding a a multiplicity of stocks. So there are two concerns. One is the cost, because you're increasing the cost. You've got an increased number of shares, but you're paying much more for it. And the second thing is you have stock overlap. So what you're doing is you'll find that within that range of, of holdings, there's a number of managers who will hold several times the same number of shares so or the same type of shares so two issues stock overlap and you're effectively paying managed fee uh, uh, managed fund costs for essentially a tracker 
Okay, so if you're running a portfolio of funds, what would be a more appropriate number of funds to have? Well, again, I'll, I'll just sort of make reference to what we tend to use for model portfolios. So we would tend to have no more than, say, 15 or 16 um, uh, funds uh, within our model portfolios as a rule. Um, and within that, we can cover both the UK, global equities, fixed interest, property, and so on reasonably well, very in a very diverse manner. So just in the UK, we would have four, maximum five um, UK equity funds that would be invested in different ways, in different strategy-type funds. Okay. Now, if you do have too many holdings, um, what steps could you take to go about choosing which ones to get rid of and, you know, rationalising the portfolio? Yeah, well, the first thing, obviously, first of all, just be aware of any tax implications. So if you don't have it in an ISA or a pension, so it's an unwrapped arrangement, just be wary of any capital gains that might have accumulated within those funds. So that's the very first thing just to be wary of. Um, if all of those things are, are, are taken into consideration and it's a case of then selling down some of the funds, look at the consistency of performance for those funds. If you've got funds that are erratic, so they're good one year, poor the next, it may be that those are the ones that you might want to come out of. And you might want to instead be thinking about looking at fund managers in, on the basis of the consistency of the returns. However, if what you want is just a very diverse holding um, and have lower fees, then look for an index fund or a, a tracker of some description um, or a, um, a, an ETF something that just brings the cost down but gives you a broad access to the market as a whole. So choose whether you want to go active or whether you want to go passive. If you want to go passive, you'll bring your costs down. If you want to go active and rely on some of the individual managers who cover the market, then look for different management styles. Um, look for perhaps one that's a value manager, another that's a growth, another that's momentum. Maybe look for an equity income focus or a UK growth focus. Again, consider whether you want large, mid, um, or multi-cap, or small companies, consider taking all of those things um, into consideration. Okay. Now, Marita featured in this portfolio clinic did actually sell some stuff. He sold off all his bond funds because he thinks they won't gain much in value. Is mm -hmm. is he correct in this assumption? And, and do you think investors should be totally avoiding, avoiding bonds? Yeah. Uh, um, I would say never say... Never. Uh, bond funds, they are going through a very tough time at the moment. Um, obviously, the, the view being in the market that we're likely to be seeing inflation coming through next year, which, of course, could impact on interest rates and therefore gilt yields are being affected. Uh, as gilt yields rise, capital values fall. So that is pushing, um, pushing bond uh, prices lower, which, of course, means anyone who's generally invested in bond funds almost certainly in the last three months, may now start to be seeing some capital losses. Future, uh, who knows? Uh, if we took everyone's advice that we heard this time last year, uh, we would have very different outcomes to what we're seeing in the markets at the moment. Um, but if we're talking about bond funds as a whole, I, I would be just being very mindful of, of some of that and, and just saying, um, yeah, they are struggling to perform at the moment, but it's important to think about what's your diversifier. If all you're just going to be doing is holding equities, and if equities were then to go into a, a significant downturn and, and a bear market, what would be the diversifier? Um, well, that's often what corporate bonds are there to do, or guilt, fixed income as a whole. Um, yes, we might be at a point where that may not happen now. Um, so the important thing is just saying, if equities turned, what would 
support your portfolio. Okay, well, with that in mind, um, what kind of bond funds could investors consider having in their portfolios? Yeah, okay. So now that having said that's the problem, we're saying what's the solution? So the solution is a difficult one. So uh, one thing we've always suggested, and I think when I've been doing these before with you previously, I just think that if you're going to hold bond funds at all, always look for strategic bond funds because it lets the manager take the hard work off you. So they're they are funds that can hold everything from the top quality government bonds, guilt, right way through um, investment grade corporate bonds, then down into high yield corporate bonds, and then perhaps even emerging market bonds as well. So you get that broad spread, and some of them even have the capacity to hold up to 20% in equities. So if they believe that there's opportunities in uh, effectively yield, uh, bond yield style equities, they will then move into them as well. So those give them most flexibility. Um, so those are pretty good. Alternatively, you're looking for short duration bonds, which then sort of reduce the risk particularly. Then there's a couple of good ones available for, perhaps through AXA or Threadneedle. If you're looking at strategic bonds as a whole, GAM Star Credit is a great fund that's been performing extremely well. Okay. Now, um, moving on to, um, let's say, the broader aspects of this portfolio, you suggest some ways to improve his tax efficiency. Um, just more generally, um, what are some of the main things investors can do to improve the tax efficiency of their portfolios? Yeah, I'll try and keep this brief. And forgive me for sort of um, this is a big issue for us as financial mm. planners is putting a bit of a tax overlay on investment markets. So the first thing I'd say is just be mindful of income. So if someone's a higher rate taxpayer, then try not to take too much income out of your portfolio because obviously every bit of income that you get is going to be having additional tax deducted at higher rate. So where possible, put income producing funds within an ISA because then there's no tax to declare. Therefore, put your capital growth funds outside your ISA. Have those as your unwrapped part and or those with very low yields. And so the second bit that then goes with that is maximise your capital gains allowance and make sure that you use it every single year wherever possible. And the third thing is then just think about what taxes could apply um, uh, from an inheritance tax perspective, what taxes could apply on your estate? Because if you maximise your return and then it's just subject to 40% tax on death, that's you know, a pretty inefficient way of managing your investment for what you want to pass on to the next generation. So just be mindful of those three things, capital gains, income tax, inheritance tax, all things that could be planned and, and just a few tweaks can make some huge changes. Okay. Um, picking up on the inheritance tax, um, you actually suggested considering alternative investment market or AIM shares because these can be used to mitigate inheritance tax. Um, what ways can um, investors access these shares? So the AIM market is one whereby some holdings within those qualify for exemption from inheritance tax as long as they've been held for two years. So one of the things that is possible is to buy into a portfolio that just holds shares that are all qualifying. Mm. So some of these can effectively be just bought off the shelf, if you like. Um, so there are packaged solutions that are available that only purchase qualifying shares. So it may be worth looking at some of those. Okay. Now, um, we're obviously talking about AIM shares as a way to mitigate tax, but um, as they say, don't let the tax tail wag the tax dog. So are there any other advantages to AIM shares and investments that are focused on them? 
Okay. Yeah. So some of the advantages are, of course, that as we were just talking about smaller companies, a lot of these are generally smaller companies. Some of them are even smaller than smaller companies, if that makes sense. Um, so that they are often, uh, it's fund management in its purest form, really, because it's simply looking at the growth possibilities of the underlying company. So there's often less consideration of the macro, what's going on in the global economy or what's going on in the UK economy. It's much more what is the opportunity that is provided by investing in this company. So some of the fund managers can really give exceptionally good returns. And it's also something where if you just look at the return of the A market, it's pretty nondescript. But actually, some of the fund managers who invest within that can give absolutely fantastic returns because they are able to weed out those companies that are going to fail from those that could be hugely successful in the long run. Okay. Now, I mean, that all sounds good, but there's always two sides of things. So um, what are the risks of AIM shares and are they suitable for all investors? Yeah, well, let's cover that bit off. Um, Yeah, they're not suitable for everyone. Um, There is more risk with, with AIM shares. Um, not least because, as we said, many of them are smaller uh, companies and, and some of them are in almost a start-up phase. So the issue there being that you need someone who can analyse what's going on with the actual business. And that might be someone that individ- something that individuals are capable of, but often it's something that you may need to rely on a good quality fund manager for doing that. And if they're able to pick the winners, then there are some really good opportunities there. However, of course, if they funds, or sorry, if they pick shares that perhaps don't last too long, then of course they could be capital losses. So it's really important to find a fund manager, if you're going to use one, who has a really good consistent outperformance, really good returns in the past. Okay. Now, staying with the theme of tax efficiency, this reader also holds several venture capital trusts, or VCTs for short. Um, what are the main roles these can play in an investor's portfolio? Well, the ongoing roles are that they can provide tax-free income uh, and that they provide tax-free growth. Um, If you're buying a new issuance, then again, as an individual, you're also often able to qualify for 30% tax relief on the purchase. So someone who purchases £100,000 of VCTs is able to normally get £30,000 of uh, tax reclaim, so they can effectively offset that against their income tax. And it's very tax efficient, but you're quite right. The tax scale shouldn't be whacking the investment dog. Uh, so, but put the two together and see if it works. So tax-free income and gains is superb. And again, often the opportunity to then build up capital by just reinvesting tax-free dividends is often something that people overlook. Okay. I mean, that all sounds very attractive, um, but do VCTs have any downsides? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And again, we've got to qualify the fact that one of the reasons why they have such incredible tax incentives is because there is additional risk. Essentially, it's another great way of funding startup businesses, essentially. So they're government incentivised for that very reason. But because of that, there is risk. And there is the risk of perhaps those underlying companies failing. Um, They're less liquid sometimes because of this. And therefore, there's increased volatility in the underlying shares. It's also really important to understand the nature of the VCT, what's its objective, what's its purpose, Um, because there are different types of VCTs that do different jobs. Okay, Um, bearing that in mind, what kind of investors are VCTs suitable for? 
Well, one of the things we found particularly recently, that you'll be aware of the limitations on pension contributions that have gradually uh, made more of an impact over the last few years. So we're finding now that either people who have reached their uh, annual allowance or lifetime allowance on pension funding are now looking for other ways of investing in a tax-efficient manner. And GCTs is one of the options that we would certainly want to be considering with a client there. Uh, and again, that's because of the tax-free um, roll-up within the fund, both growth and income, uh, and also the 30% uh, relief that's available at, uh, initially as well. So uh, it's really good for people who are maximising pension contributions, people who are at retirement looking to receive uh, a tax-efficient income into the future, or people who are post-retirement perhaps have some additional capital available. Okay. Now, this reader, um, as we mentioned, um, rather likes having lots of holdings and he has no less than 11 VCTs. Is this an appropriate number or how many VCTs would you suggest an investor who, um, you know, needs to, um, you know, fulfil these uh, tax efficiency? How many should they hold? Yeah. Again, that will be unique to each client, really. So it, just generally, if someone's investing, then I would be thinking maybe five or six would probably be sufficient. However, bearing in mind that an individual could invest up to 200,000 into a VCT in any one tax year, uh, £200,000. Um, and it wouldn't be unreasonable to perhaps spread that across four um, VCTs in, in any one tax year. So if you think over a number of years, it's not impossible to build up a, a reasonable number of actual VCT holdings, although, of course, they can be topped up um, mm. as each year goes along. But again, just understand the managers, understand the different focuses. There are three main types of VCTs. So you get your AIM VCTs, you get mm. your generalist VCTs, which are more widely spread. And then there are planned exit VCTs as well. So they maybe have a, a, an objective of a five-year lifespan or something of that nature. Okay, thank you, Colin. Some really helpful points. That's all we've got time for this week, so it just remains to thank Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor to Investors Chronicle, and Colin Lowe, Managing Director of Kingsfleet Wealth. You can read more manager share picks, UK smaller companies, and ways to cut down a portfolio to a, a decent size in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening, and have a good weekend. 